0: It is said, isn't it, that you can you can tell the quality of a person by the company that they keep. You can tell the quality of a person by the company that they keep. Well, that is absolute nonsense. Because you can't always be selective, can you, about the people that you spend time with. You know, good manners, family duty, and many other factors outside of our control force us to associate with people who perhaps we'd rather avoid, like my brother. Now I'm only joking. He's a lovely guy, and he probably is listening to this, so there we go. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> the better way, though, to assess a person and the quality of a person is by finding out rather who they admire. Because we choose our heroes, don't we? We choose them because they have qualities that we would uh, aspire to. They personify our kind of ambitions in our dreams. And, and therefore, as we begin, who do you admire? Who do you admire? Who would you l- most like to meet and, yeah, and have a drink with, a bit of a coffee with? Yeah, Knowing that, you see, will tell you a whole heap about yourself. The church in Corinth, uh, we're, we're reading this letter here that Paul had written to this church uh, in this place called Corinth. They were divided about who they admired. Some within the church admired Paul, who's written this letter to them. He had established a church in Corinth and by teaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And now, however, there was this other group within the church in Corinth, leaders, leaders, Rivals to Paul. And they, like Paul, called themselves apostles. Uh, But but as we'll see later, they were very, very different to Paul. And they were of a great concern to him. Who do you admire? Who do the church in Corinth admire? That's the big question in these last few chapters. But I think there is another question that kind of bounces around in the bigger context of these last few chapters. And that is... What do you expect? As Christians, we live in a tension, don't we, between the now, what we experience as a Christian now, the blessings that we enjoy in Christ now, but also what is yet to come, the not yet. You see, as we put our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're safe in God's eternal kingdom now. The kingdom has already been established through his death and resurrection. And now we are members of that. And experience the blessings of that. Forgiveness of sin, for example. Eternal life. We know that blessing now. Relationship with God. The down payment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have so many blessings now. I read Ephesians 1 if you'd like to. the a whole raft of them there. But the problem is we still know pain, don't we? And we still know suffering. Our bodies are still decaying. Day by day. We still haven't seen God face to face, have we? Uh, We aren't perfected as we one day will be. And therefore, as a Christian, we we know there is so much to come. The not yet is sort of there, but we must wait patiently for it. And that is the reality of a Christian. There's there's blessings now, but there's, there's stuff to wait for. There's the not yet. And we are called to live in this tension. And so therefore, what do you expect day by day, living as a Christian? Now, we must not underestimate the blessings that we can know now it, with, in relationship with Christ. The Christian life is amazing. Forgiveness of sin, wow. It's amazing. But we must be careful not to expect too much overestimating the blessings that we can know now as Christians, which is what was going on and being taught in Corinth. These leaders were saying, oh, blessings of the promised life to come, oh, you can have those now. If you just listen to us, we know better. If they were to ignore Paul and follow these new leaders, that's the problem within the church And their values, these new teachers, they're kind of inverted. They may look so impressive as individuals, they may sound so impressive, and they promise so much which sounds so inviting. But Paul in these four chapters is calling the church to be faithful followers of Jesus and to join with him, as we'll see at the end of our passage today, in disciplining these leaders and their dodgy teachings. If chapters 1 to 9, if you look back uh, in, in this letter, uh, they're, they're more about encouragement. There's a, there's a positive note. They're encouraging those who are being faithful within the church. Well, these next four chapters, chapters 10 to 13, are much more a rebuke to the unrepentant people in Corinth. And particularly these teachers who are promising so much, too much. It's good to remember, as we begin, though, uh, the journey that Paul has taken with this young church in Corinth. He'd established a church in about AD 50, 51, we think. He stayed there for over a year. And after being there for a while, he he left to go to Ephesus, which is his base at the time. Um, Paul had written to them a couple of times. He wrote, and you can read this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, if you want to make a note of that, do, that he'd previously written to them. He then sent his second letter. Which is what we have as 1 Corinthians. I know it's confusing. But 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter that he's written. And then he sent Timothy to teach and to lead them for a while. Timothy then comes back to Ephesus and reports to Paul. Uh, about the poor state of the church. So they were going, it was becoming quite a mess actually. And Paul, so concerned for the church in Corinth, decides to change his plans. And he goes back to Corinth for a second visit. Now that second visit is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1 and 2. Again, make a note of that if you like. And after that visit he returns back to Corinth. But such is his concern for the church that he writes again to them what is known as his severe letter. Now we don't have that letter. Uh, no, one, no one's ever seen it. But we do know it was delivered by Titus to Corinth, and it is mentioned again within 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Then we get to this letter, 2 Corinthians. It's actually Paul's fourth letter. And it's far more upbeat to begin with, as I mentioned. It seems the church have responded to all that Paul has done, both in his letter writing and in his visits. It's positive. Uh, And actually, you get to uh, chapter 7, and you read that now Paul is overjoyed at the news that is coming back from the church in Corinth. Things are going well. But then you get to chapters 10 to 13, and the tone changes dramatically. And the question is who will this church follow? Who will they follow will depend on who they admire and what they expect in the Christian life. And so as you see on your outlines, I've put three quick points down to just guide us through these first six verses of chapter 10. We will see Paul's appeal to the Corinthian church, Paul's weapon of divine power, and Paul's expectation of unity. Firstly then, verse 1 and 2, Paul's appeal to the Corinthian church. Let me read those first verse again. By the humility and gentleness of Christ... I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. It gives you a little context there of the idea of what's going on. It's interesting, classical literature shows us that in this age, humility, which he mentions there, was absolutely frowned upon. The word ostentatious wasn't negative as we might see it now. Actually, if you had it, you just flaunted it. And you told everyone about it. And that was totally accepted and was approved of. A person who demonstrated humility was actually considered quite lowly and quite weak. And it certainly, certainly wasn't to be admired. Paul's rivals in the church uh, thought that they had it and they were definitely flaunting it in the church. They were great orators, it seems. They had a presence and a gravitas. They they looked and they sounded so, so impressive. They'd been schooled in rhetoric and, and, and public speaking. Humility. That was considered such a weakness by them. These new ministers and currents shamelessly promoted themselves as powerful and extraordinary We read, if you want to note that down, chapter 3, verse 1, that they brought to Corinth letters of recommendation. It was quite a done thing at the time for public speakers. Look how great I am. Here's a letter to prove it. They pointed to ecstatic dreams and visions that they'd experienced to to legitimise their claims. You can read about that in chapter 5, verse 13. They boasted that they travelled such long distances. Oh, we've made such an effort to be with you. We love you so much. They boasted about that. In chapter 10, verse 13 onwards. And they looked at Paul and they criticised him, saying, Oh, this man, he can write these strong, severe letters, which he called them. But when he comes to you, oh, he's so timid. He's so gentle. And it was nothing that... That culture certainly these teachers could admire. And against these accusations, Paul writes verse 1, and it is a stroke of genius, isn't it? Oh, Paul presents himself in humility and gentleness. And you can imagine that people, oh, no, not that. But these... Are the things that his rivals despise. But what is he showing? He, he's showing his opponents that they're, they're setting their standards in direct opposition to God's word and to Jesus Christ himself by the humility and gentleness of Christ. Because that's what he was like. I appeal to you. And he extends his plea in verse two, doesn't he? I beg you, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, the teachers, who think that we live by the standards of this world. He's begging them, please, please don't let me come and have to be so bold kind of with you. And he's warning the faithful majority within the church that if they follow this minority group of teachers, and their followers, who were rejecting Paul, it was going to have to be tough. There's a warning here. And to those teachers, Paul was this kind of worldly minister, as we see there in verse 2, because he, he lacked a kind of, as they perceived, a divine power. But it was these new teachers who lacked, and Paul is about to take them apart. Paul points, doesn't he, as wonderfully to the Corinthian church, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was timid, yes, because he, in, because he imitated the humility and the gentleness of Christ. It's interesting, we look back, didn't we, and, um, in Matthew 11, verse 29, just very recently, and we saw that it's exactly the same qualities that Jesus pointed, the we're the burden to, weary in burden to. Paul is begging the church, please listen, so that he doesn't have to come to them again with a stinging rebuke and judgment. They must not confuse and we must not confuse meekness, humility. When he is present with them, he must not confuse that as weakness. Paul's appeal to the church is to listen because he could so easily wage war with them if necessary. Which is what he warns them of in the following verses. Let's look at that. Verses 3 to 5. We see here Paul's weapon of divine power. Verse 3 For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. Now, for the image of verse 3, it's interesting, don't don't think conventional warfare with kind of guns and and kind of grenades. Perhaps better, think of the, the, the great debating chambers of some of the most prestigious universities of the world. Imagine two sides in kind of arguing their position with dazzling kind of rhetoric and eloquent speeches. This is the world in which Paul works in and lives in. He doesn't wage war, though, like the new teachers in Corinth. Paul has different methods. If you were to look back, actually, to Paul's previous letter, 1 Corinthians 2, for example, Paul says this. When I came to you, this is verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, Paul's methods for the time were so unconventional. These new teachers in Corinth, they, they looked great on the stages. They were skilled in public speaking. Oh, but Paul's ministry, on the face of it, it might look weak. But it had all the power of the Spirit of God. He's already told the church in this letter about the weapons he used. Uh, Why don't we just um, could you just flip back in 2 Corinthians, back to chapter 4 for a second. Chapter 4. And here we see uh, some of what Paul is trying to show them about his ministry. He says in verse 2, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. I wonder who he's thinking about there. Nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, the truth of God's word plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Just go on to verse 5. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now what weapons does Paul use? Is it his persuasive speech? Sorry, that was... Not very persuasive but you get the picture his impre- i can't even do this next one the impressive persona no there we go you know whatever no paul's weapons are spiritual ones like in ephesians ephesians chapter 6 for example he takes hold of the sword of the spirit the bible the word of god and he lets god do his work by his spirit And look how powerful this. Flip back to uh, chapter 10 again, please. Chapter 10, verse 4. Look how powerful his ministry is because he lets God do the work. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You see, the weapons that Paul uses, that is, as we've seen there, setting forth the truth plainly of God's word, preaching the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, Oh, it seems so simple, doesn't it? it, Yet it demolishes the strongholds. We don't know exactly what the strongholds of these teachers were. That is, it's probably whatever makes, whatever is central to their teaching. Whatever thoughts made them look and appear so good, so impressive. Paul takes out the Bible. He demolishes them. Because God's spirit and power is there. They use worldly weapons, deception and flattery, overstating the blessings of the Christian life. Uh, They think that dreams and visions will win people over. Paul comes along with the word of God and demolishes. Demolishes. You know what that word means, the extent of it. The strongest parts of who they are and what they teach. Verse 5 goes on, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now literally in the Greek that reads like this, we demolish every high thing. Every high thing that is lifted up against God. And do you see what Paul is saying here then? Do you see the power of the word of God put forth plainly? The gospel is powerful to destroy the methods and the thinking of any of God's opponents. Looking back, just, just think for a moment. Yeah. Many of you are Christians here today. When you became a Christian, when you understood that you and you put your faith in Jesus, that He died on the cross for your sins in your place, taking that punishment that you deserve when you realise that you can be forgiven and eternally loved because he's defeated death for you by rising to new life. When you became a Christian, did you become a Christian because the speaker was really, really impressive or because the emotional intensity of the situation persuaded you or someone had had a, a dream or a vision or a picture for you I know some of you, like me, prayed a prayer with your mum and dad. I know some of you heard the gospel perhaps at a summer camp when you were a child growing up. I know some of you were students, probably with some very cheap pizza, nasty tasting pizza beside you. And that's when you became a Christian. One or two of you and I have been there. We've opened up the Bible and allowed God to speak. And by his Spirit, he's come into your life. And do you know what the best bit about that is? It's nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with God and His Word being put forth plainly. I hope that encourages some of us. None of us here need to be impressive speakers, great at oratory, eloquent, and all those kind of things. That's what these new teachers uh, in Corinth were doing. They were challenging Paul saying, look, he looks so unimpressive. Listen to us. And they need to hear the rebuke like Paul does, like the new teachers do from Paul. We just need to open up God's word and set forth the truth plainly. Because it's the gospel here that has the power. God speaking through his word and the spirit working in and through that. That is what will change us, and has changed many of us, and is what will change our friends and our neighbours. Nothing against my parents, but they aren't very impressive people. My bedroom is not a very impressive place as a young boy, as you can imagine. The emotional experience as a young boy, as I sat there with my parents on my bed, that emotional experience wasn't anything special. But when I prayed as a young boy, a simple prayer saying sorry to God for my turning my back on him. Thank you to God for sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to take the punishment that my sins deserve. And please, please God, come into my life by your spirit. Lead me and love me through your word, the Bible. Sorry, thank you. As I, as I prayed that very simple prayer as a young boy. The word of God was taking me captive. Notice how the divine power that Paul wields demolishes arguments, pretensions that set themselves up against God's word. But it also takes hearts, minds captive. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive Every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you are here and you are not a Christian, firstly, you are hugely welcome. There's some amazing brownies. I'm going to enjoy those. Please come and share them with me afterwards. We'll eat the whole plate together. But please hear this. Don't look at me. Don't look at the people around. Look at us. We're so unimpressive. Don't look for some emotional experience or some dream or vision. If you want to be with God for eternity, knowing peace in your hearts today, forgiveness for your sin. Open this dangerous book right in front of you. The Bible. Hear God speak into your life. And let his spirit just melt your heart. It will take you captive in the most amazing and yet most life-affirming way. And is why Paul thought nothing of going into all of these uh, cities and the towns he visited, Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica. They're materialistic, they're mono—sorry, uh, polytheistic, that is, cultures which uh, worshipped multiple gods And Paul went into these cities, into these towns and he opened up the scriptures, the Bible and explained the good news about Jesus plainly so that everyone could understand. And he didn't look at them and go, oh, they're so materialistic, they can't possibly listen to this or they believe in these other gods and they can't possibly hear this. No. He knew that opening up God's word... And its divine power would prove to be strong enough to demolish anything in its path. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't anything but winsome and respectful. But he did teach the Bible and the good news about Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, when we look at people we know and consider them beyond the reaches of the gospel. Who do you do that to? Who do you look at in your workplace and go, oh, they'll never become a Christian? They believe this. They're from this other religion. They're so satisfied in life. They'll never become a Christian. Who is the person who you think that of? I know some in my mind. Do we think they're really beyond the power of God and his word? Or do you know, like Paul, that God's word can take anyone's heart captive? We just have the the joy and responsibility to set forth the truth plainly. And it's exactly what Paul had been doing amongst the Corinthians. Were they convinced? Would they admire more the eloquence and the the ecstatic visions of these new teachers who, who promised too much in this life as a Christian? Or would the Corinthian church be loyal to Paul and God's word? It's clear that Paul wants the church to join him against this dangerous minority group of teachers. And that's in this last verse, while he asks them to join with him. There's an expectation of unity. Look at verse 6. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You see, Paul here, is, is, as we close, just, he's, he's urging the church to join with him, to listen to him, to heed the warning, to not be swayed by these new teachers, because he's saying judgment will come. And Paul is saying, don't side with these kind of worldly teachers and their promises. And you hear it so much, don't you, today on the TV. These teachers who are promising health, wealth and prosperity. Don't be persuaded by their impressive speeches. And look how Paul uses the plural to show his expectation. We will be ready. Us together, me and you, the church. We, the faithful church in Corinth, will be ready to punish these teachers and discipline them. Which probably meant throwing them out of the church. And Paul expects the church to be obedient to God's way. Blessings now, with patience to wait for greater blessings to come. That tension between the now and the not yet. So we know now that the forgiveness of sin, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, eternal life now, fellowship with one another, blessings now, wonderful things. But we wait. And Paul is calling the church to wait God's way, embracing the meekness, the gentleness and the humility of Christ, taking up his weapons of war with the divine power, setting forth the truth of God's word plainly. And we don't know. We don't know whether Paul's appeal fell on deaf ears. We don't know what the Corinthian church did and how they responded, but We would be fools, wouldn't we, to ignore Paul's appeal and his warning here. So, who do you admire? Who do you admire and why? There's nothing wrong with speakers on great big stages speaking to great numbers of people, and nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But don't be fooled by the eloquence of a speech and the emotion of a situation. We need people to set forth the truth about God's word and the Lord Jesus Christ plainly and simply and letting God do his work through his word. And what do you expect? Well, in some ways, it will be, uh, that will be determined by who you admire, won't it? if you want health, wealth and prosperity uh, in your life as a Christian now, if you want some ecstatic, emotional-driven experiences, dreams and visions, you will admire the teachers who teach that kind of thing. Even though, as Paul says, in God's Word, it says that it's deceptive, and it's plainly not from God, and will only lead to disappointment. No, expect the the blessings promised in God's Word and wait patiently For all the blessings to come. Set forth the truth of God's word plainly. And the wonderful thing we can do is just then sit back. Sit back and watch God work through his word and by his spirit. And watch hearts and minds being taken captive. And then rejoice. Rejoice knowing it wasn't you. As we just sung, yet not I but through Christ in me. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, it, it is so easy to be swayed by the methods of this world and yet we see here that Paul was someone who came with great humility and gentleness. The humility and gentleness of Christ. And he simply opened up the good news of Jesus. Lord, as we look at Paul's ministry, uh, as he travelled around and established church after church and the gospel went forth. Help us to see that you were at work there, that it was your power being displayed, and I pray that we would try to emulate that in our own lives, not trying to impress people with ourselves, but rather just daring to open up the good news of Jesus, opening up the Bible, and allowing you to do your work in our lives, day by day, but also in those we meet, we pray this for the honour and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.